This evening we're going to conclude our study in Isaiah 53. We've been a few weeks in this great and wonderful passage of Scripture. Probably one of the greatest passages of Scripture. If we can, we can call it the very central passage of all of Scripture. For indeed it points to the sufferings and the death of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. But not only that, but as we'll see tonight, it also speaks of His resurrection. and It speaks of His victory for us. Isaiah 53, I want to begin reading at verse 9. Even though we studied 9 last week, I want verse 9 to kind of tie into verse 10 for just a moment. We'll read the passage and then we'll pray and we'll get right into our study. It says, And they made his grave with the wicked, but with the rich at his death, because he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. Yet, <coughs> excuse me, yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He has put him to grief. When you make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed. He shall prolong his days. And the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. He shall see the labor or the travail of his soul and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant shall justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the great, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong. Because he poured out his soul unto death, and he was numbered with the transgressors, and he bore the sin of many, and made intercession for the transgressors. Shall we pray? Father, this evening we ask that you would, by the power of your Holy Spirit, grant us wisdom, grant us knowledge and understanding to be that which will birth that wisdom in our minds and in our hearts concerning Isaiah 53 and concerning the person and the work of Jesus Christ, our Lord and our Savior. I ask, Father, that you grant us, Lord, just a tremendous understanding of the pictures that we see in this last part of this chapter. May it remind us constantly of the great price that was paid for our sins, for the punishment of our sins. And that not upon ourselves, but upon the one who took our sins upon Himself, on the cross. Lord, help us to see this, we pray. In Jesus' name, Amen. There is an interesting and highly significant juxtaposition 
That's a fancy word. But a highly significant juxtaposition or a, a concurrence or a unity, as, you, as, it were, as it were, between verse 9, and that's the reason why I wanted to read it, verse 9 of the previous section, which we studied last time, and verse 10 in this last section of Isaiah 53, as we consider the tremendously important question, and this is the question that we want to, to take heart to tonight. Why did Jesus suffer so grievously if He, as the servant of the Lord, was the absolutely sinless one? Why did Jesus suffer so much and so grievously as the servant of the Lord? If he was sinless, if he was innocent, why did he suffer so much? Verse 10 actually fully answers that question. And I want you to notice how it's answered. It says, yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. That's the answer. It pleased the Lord to bruise him. An even more accurate way of putting this would be, he had to suffer because it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He had to suffer because it pleased the Lord to bruise him. Now everything that we've been reading up to this point, how he bore our griefs, he carried our sorrows, how he was wounded for our transgressions, how he was bruised for our iniquities. The stripes that were upon him were for our healing. How he was oppressed and afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. How he went as a lamb to the slaughter, as sheep before its shears is silent, he opened not his mouth. When you consider all of these things, then you have to realize when it says that it pleased the Lord to bruise him, in verse 10, that he did not suffer on account of any sin found in himself, but because it pleased the Lord to crush it. And it's still, you know, it's still a thought that's very hard to accept and hard to understand. The idea that behind all the acts of human injustice, there was a hidden work of the Lord <coughs> has already been expressed for us in this chapter. That's verse 6, where it says, All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. So that idea behind all these acts of human injustice, all these, these acts that came upon the Lord, Jesus, as a hidden work of the Lord, was made clear in verse 6. The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. But this is now repeated with a special emphasis on the good pleasure or the will of God evident in it. And that's, how, that's another way that you can see this is being expressed, that it is the good pleasure and will of God being evident in this particular verse. It pleased the Lord to bruise him. Now this constitutes for us the deepest ground or the deepest reasons for Jesus' suffering. 
It is the key to the whole mystery of His suffering. So if you miss this, you miss everything. So you've got to listen very carefully to what we have to say tonight. Because without this explanation, a person may easily come to two wrong conclusions regarding his bitter suffering and his death. The first wrong conclusion would be that, he, that Jesus suffered so bitterly and died such a humiliating and shameful death because he was such a great sinner. Well, we know that that's not right. We know that that's not the truth. But there's another uh, misconception and wrong conclusion that can come out of this particular passage, and that is that he suffered so incomparably as an innocent martyr at the hands of evil people as did other martyrs. But what the prophet Isaiah does in this last section of chapter 53 is explain the cross from God's point of view. The prophet is getting us to see God's point of view in what has taken place throughout this whole chapter. Even though Jesus was crucified at the hands of wicked men, His death was predetermined by God Himself. His death was predetermined by God Himself. This is what we heard Peter say in Acts chapter 2, verses 22 through 20, uh, and verse 23 as well. There at Pentecost when he's preaching, Men of Israel, hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs which God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves also know. And notice verse 23, Him being delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God, you have taken by lawless hands, have crucified and put to death. But notice that he says, being delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of of God. From God's point of view, Jesus Christ was given for this very purpose. Given to suffer. Given to grieve. Given to receive everything that this particular chapter has told us. And because of this, the, miscon the misconceptions are really removed. There can be no misconception any longer. Jesus was not being punished for his sins since he was sinless. That's obvious throughout many of the passages of scriptures that we have read. Secondly, Jesus was not a martyr, nor was his death an accident. He was God's sacrifice for the sins of the world. Why do you think that John the Baptist, when he finally recognizes who Jesus is, says, Behold the Lamb of God. Behold Him who taketh away the sins of the world. For his eyes were open to the very fact that Jesus was the Messiah who came to this earth to die for the sins of men. This is why we can read John 3.16 without it sounding so cliché-ish. As if to say, you know, so many people know it, so many people see it. Used to be it was on TV all the time. Just the numbers, John 3.16. Even books today are being written 3.16. Folks, this is John 3.16. For God so loved the world that He gave, gave completely, gave His only begotten Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. 
For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through Him might be saved. This was His plan. This was His predetermined plan. This was His determined purpose and foreknowledge. And adding to the thought... (coughs) That it was God Himself who dealt with Christ in judgment when He hung on the cross. It is important to note that it was not His physical sufferings alone that made propitiation for sin, and I'll explain that in a moment. But what He endured in His innermost being when His holy spotless soul became the great sin offering. In other words, it was not what man did to him that made reconciliation for iniquity, but what he endured at the hand of God. Leading to him <coughs> crying out on the cross, as we see in Mark fifteen thirty-four, that at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, saying, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which is translated, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What we are learning is that He was forsaken, that we might be received into His divine favor. That is why He was forsaken. That we might be received into the divine favor of God. And what verse 10 goes on to say is this, Though God caused Him to suffer and make Jesus' life a guilt offering, it is also the Lord's will to link with this guilt offering the prospect of a blessed future for the great sufferer. Because it says, He shall see His seed and prolong His days. He shall see his seed and prolong his days. You know, in those times, and in that culture, of course, it was a shameful thing not to have children. Somewhere down the line, somebody would probably say something about the fact that Jesus wasn't married. Jesus didn't have children. There was something shameful about that. But God the Father had all of that worked out, you see. Because even here He says He shall see His seed, His descendants, and prolong His days. And by seed here is meant His spiritual descendants, the congregation that is born of Him. Turn to Hebrews chapter 2 for just a moment. Here's a tremendous passage that kind of gives us a little bit of a, of, a, of a greater understanding of what we're reading right now in verse 10 of Hebrews, I'm sorry, of, of Isaiah chapter 53. Hebrews 2 verse 10, let's begin reading there. It says, For it was fitting for Him, for whom are all things and by whom are all things, in bringing many sons to glory. Isn't that a wonderful statement? It was fitting for Him, for whom are all things and by whom are all things, and bringing many sons to glory, to make the captain of their salvation perfect through what? Sufferings. For both He who sanctifies and those who are being sanctified are all one. 
For which reason he is not ashamed to call them brethren, saying, I will declare your name to my brethren. In the midst of the assembly I will sing praise to you. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, here am I and the children whom God has given me. And that's taken from a passage in Isaiah. Inasmuch then as the children have partaken of flesh and blood, he himself likewise shared in the same, that through death he might destroy him who had the power of death, that is the devil, and release those who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. So you see then that bringing Jesus to his death was not the end of the story. It was not the end of the plan. For he was going to suffer, but he was also going to see his seed and prolong his days. And so Jesus did not remain dead. That's the whole passage here. He shall prolong his days means that the servant was resurrected to live forever. In rising from the dead, Jesus triumphed over every enemy and claimed the spoils of victory. Now, this is something we'll see at the very end as well. So we're going to take the time to look at this victory, to look at this triumph over death. In Ephesians chapter 1, turn there now in verse 19. Ephesians chapter 1 verse 19, Paul says, And what is the exceeding greatness of His power toward us who believe, according to the working of His mighty power, which He worked in Christ when He raised Him from the dead, and seated Him at His right hand in the heavenly places. So Paul is saying very clearly here that by the power of God that was working in Christ when He raised Him from the dead, He seated Him in, in his, at His right hand in the heavenly places, far above all principality and power and might and dominion, and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in that which is to come. And He put all things under His feet. <coughs> and gave him to be head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. That's a victorious passage. It speaks of the victory that came in Christ's death, burial, and resurrection. And the, and the spoils of victory over the enemy, far above all principality, power, might, and dominion. And he's put all things under his feet. In other words, the conquering victor is over all. When you go down to Ephesians chapter 4, verses 7 and 8, it says, But to each one of us grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. And therefore he says, when he ascended on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts to man. The gifts were the spoils. The spoils of victory. He gave gifts to men. What did He give us? He gave us grace. For by grace we are saved through faith, and that not of ourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. And this idea, this thought comes from Psalm 68, verses 18 and 19, where the psalmist says, You have ascended on high, you have led captivity captive, you have received gifts, from, uh, gifts among men, even from the rebellious, that the Lord God might dwell there. Blessed be the Lord who daily loads us with benefits, the God of our salvation. (coughs) 
This is the victory that is won because of what Jesus Christ endured for us. And we are the ones who receive the benefits of it because He won the victory. We who believe in Him and receive Him as Lord and Savior get blessed by these very spoils of the victory over the enemy. And so he shall see his seed, the spiritual descendants, those who have come to Christ. He shall prolong his days, which means that he will, in fact, rise from the dead, which he did, and have victory over death and sin. And then it tells us that the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. The pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in His hand. Now at the beginning of the verse, the divine will is mentioned as the deepest reason for all His suffering. But now the Lord's will proves to have embraced a distant future that begins after His suffering has been completed. So the pleasure of the Lord, what was the first pleasure? The pleasure was for Him to suffer. The pleasure was for Him to be bruised. This was his determined plan, but now the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper, shall prosper, looking future in his hand. And it brings to mind the exaltation of Jesus because of his victory at the cross. And so think about this in Philippians 2, and we are, we are going to come back to this at the end of our study. But in Philippians chapter 2, verses 8 through 11, it says, and, and Paul says, "...and being found in appearance as a man..." He humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of of the cross. Therefore, notice, because of this, therefore, God also has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of those in heaven, of those on earth, and of those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God. Of God the Father. That is his prospering in God's hand. That is the victory. His pleasure, the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper. See, Jesus is exalted today. We today gather in, in, in the name of the Lord to worship Him, to praise Him, to exalt the name of Jesus, because He is victorious, and He's going to get us through this life. The pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in His hand, not just for Jesus, but for those who believe in Him. No matter what we go through in this life, as we are submitting ourselves to the love of the Lord, submitting ourselves to His will, Submitting ourselves to His victory. And then we live our lives to honor Him. The pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in His hand. Then in verse 11 of our text in Isaiah 53, it says, He shall see the labor of His soul, or the travail of His soul. An interesting word because it actually literally means birth pangs. 
He shall see the birth pangs, the travail of his soul, and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant shall justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. Very simply here, in verse 11, his suffering, which included his death, led to life. Speaking of his resurrection. And so the servant's work on the cross brought satisfaction. It is as if God Himself has seen the labor, seen the travail, seen the birth pangs of Christ's soul in the midst of this suffering and is satisfied. Satisfaction has come. God would see the suffering of Jesus and be satisfied that the requirements that our sins be paid for would be fulfilled. <coughs> that the requirements that our sins be paid for, that that itself would be satisfied by what Jesus did on the cross. But even more intimately than that, the servant, first and foremost, satisfied the heart of the Father. The servant satisfied the heart of the Father. Turn with me, if you will, to John chapter 8. The Gospel of John chapter 8. And look, if you will, at verse 28 and verse 29. And notice the language that Jesus uses here. He says, Then Jesus said to them, When you lift up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am He. And that I do nothing of myself, but as my Father taught me, I speak these things. And He who sent me is with me. The Father has not left me alone. And notice the last phrase. For I always do those things that please Him. I always do those things that please Him. <laughs> that is the perfection of Christ. Is that everything the Father sent Him to do... Everything the Father wanted Him to do in this life. Jesus did to please His Father. There was never once that Jesus didn't please His Father. Everything that Jesus came to do, He satisfied His Father's heart. That's a, that's a, a, a tremendous testimony, isn't it? Our desire is to, you know, is to satisfy our God and Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. And it's very hard for us to ever have a day where we get to the end of that day and say, Oh Lord, I satisfied everything perfectly, didn't I? We never do that. Somewhere down the line we miss something. We might have tried. Maybe we didn't even go out the door because we said, Lord, if I go out the door, I know I'm going to mess up, so I'll just stay home. And by staying home, he just messed up because he wanted you to go someplace. <laughs> you see, that's why people shouldn't look at the daily horoscopes. Those are stupid anyway. You're depending on, you know, print on a page, you know. And the Lord's saying, you know what? Live for me. Abide in me and I'll abide in you. Dwell in me and I will dwell in you. And I'll lead you and I'll guide you. I know when you're going to mess up. It's all right. 
I'll pick you up. I know that you don't enjoy messing up, but you'll be okay. Don't mess up, but if you do, I'm right there. I'm okay. I'll help you. So Jesus never disappointed his father. And that's a wonderful thing to know because He died for us. But now I also want you to understand something. Please understand that the Heavenly Father did not find enjoyment in seeing His beloved Son suffer. It would be easy when you look at verse 10 and say, Wow, it pleased the Lord to bruise Him. As if the pleasure was in bruising Him, in hurting Him, and taking the pleasure in that. And again, we've misunderstood that. What God was doing. In sending His own only begotten Son, He came because He would be perfectly fulfilling everything that needed to happen. That's what pleased the Father. It did not please the Father, and it did not bring Him enjoyment in seeing His Son suffer, for the Father is not pleased, and listen carefully, the Father is not pleased with the death of the wicked, let alone the death of the righteous Son of God, the death of His own Son. If He's not pleased with the death of the wicked, how much more then will He not be pleased with the death of His Son? But the Father was pleased, and notice this, that the Father was pleased that His Son's obedience accomplished the redemption that He had planned from all eternity. That's what pleased the Father. That His Son's obedience accomplished the redemption that He had planned for us who believe. Turn to First Peter chapter 1. <coughs> for there in First Peter 1, beginning at verse 17... It says, And if you call on the Father, who without partiality judges according to each one's work, conduct yourselves throughout the time of your stay here in fear, knowing that you were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold from your aimless conduct received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ, as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. Now notice verse 20. He indeed was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for you, who through Him believe in God, who raised Him from the dead and gave Him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. So verse 20 says, He indeed was foreordained before the foundation of the world. That is where the plan was. And where it came from. Eternity passed. He was foreordained before the foundation of the world, before anything was ever created. The plan already existed. And so the Father was pleased that His Son's obedience accomplished the redemption that He had planned all eternity. But then I want you also to remember the words of Jesus Christ on the cross. In John 19 verse 30, it says, So when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. And bowing his head, he gave up his spirit. 
He said, it is finished. Why would he say that? Because he knew what the plan was. This was the plan before the foundation of the world. And what he came to do in the flesh, to die on that cross for the sins of the world, he said, it is finished. It is accomplished. Not one thing did Jesus not do that he was called to do. He did it all. Not one thing was left undone by Jesus for the sake of our sins. He said, it's finished, it's accomplished, it's done. Father, your will has been done. The death of Jesus Christ on the cross also satisfied the law of God. It not only satisfied the Father, but it satisfied the law of God. Theologically speaking, it is the word propitiation. Propitiation. We're going to talk a little bit about that word, so turn to Romans chapter 3 for just a moment. (laughs) And in Romans 3, verse 24 and verse 25... Paul says that uh, we being justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God set forth as a propitiation. So you have that word in your Bibles, or at least you should. Maybe some translations might try to uh, define it for you. But the word is very important. Whom God set forth, speaking of Jesus, whom God set forth as a propitiation by His blood through faith, to demonstrate His righteousness, because in His forbearance, God had passed over the sins that were previously committed. Now, can we get a better understanding of that word? Well, turn to 1 John. 1 John chapter 2, and verses 1 and 2. And here John writes, My little children, these things I write to you, so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And He Himself is the propitiation. In other words, if you want to define this term, literally it is, He Himself is the atoning sacrifice. He Himself is the propitiation or the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the whole world. And what we have to understand about that is it is not just for us only being us as Jews, John says, but also for the whole world, meaning Jews and Gentiles. What have we been talking about on Sunday mornings? Look how all of this is, is being brought together into our, into our thought processes as we're going through this uh, book of Acts, chapter 10, with Peter seeing that big sheet, you know, with all the animals coming down. And the Lord talking about, you know, to Peter, you know, hey, rise, kill and eat, everything's clean. Jew and Gentile coming to the Lord because of Jesus Christ being the propitiation, the atoning sacrifice. <coughs> now, <coughs> in, <coughs> in pagan and heathen cultures <coughs> and religions, propitiation meant 
to offer sacrifices to appease an angry God. That's literally what it meant. To appease or, you know, just to placate, as it were, an angry God. But the biblical meaning is much richer. God is angry at sin, isn't He? God is angry at sin because it offends His holiness and violates His law, which is holy. In His holiness, sinners must be judged by Him. But in His love, His desire is to forgive them. So the Lord cannot ignore sin or even compromise with it, since that would be contrary to His own nature and law. So how did the Lord then solve that problem? In His holiness, sin must be judged. In His love, He desires to show mercy. How does He solve the problem? He solves the problem because the judge took the place of the criminals. The judge took the place of the criminals and met the righteous demands of His own law. For God so loved the world that He sent His only begotten Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish under the law, should not perish but but have everlasting life. That's the mercy of God. But sin has to be judged. And so notice something, if you will, look at verse 12 of our text in in, in Isaiah. We're going to come back to it in just a moment, but I want to pull out just one little phrase that's there in Isaiah 53, verse 12, because you have to notice this. It says in the middle of the verse, He was numbered with the transgressors. You all see that? It's about the third phrase there. He was numbered with the transgressors. And He bore the sin of many. He was numbered with the transgressors. What does that mean? Well, you know, simply when when you read Luke chapter 23, and Jesus, by the way, I believe in chapter 22, uses that particular phrase to say, this is about me, that I'll be numbered with the transgressors. But in Luke 23, 33, it says, when they had come to the place called Calvary, there they crucified Him and the criminals, one on the right hand and the other on the left. He was numbered, you see, with the transgressors. But then it says, Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. And they divided His garments and cast lots. So He was not only numbered with the transgressors, but even prayed for them. He even prayed for them. Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. And not just the two criminals next to Him, but all the criminals that were around Him. That being every one that was around Him. Because every one was a criminal because they had all fallen short of the glory of God. They had all broken God's law. And here they were crucifying the Messiah of God. But He prayed for them. And now the law had been satisfied. Because Jesus was on the cross paying for our sins. Bearing our sins on that cross. And God could now graciously forgive all who would receive His Son. And this brings us back to verse 11. 
And the next statement that is made there in verse 11 where it says, By his knowledge, my righteous servant shall justify many, (coughs) for he shall bear their iniquities. Simply, salvation comes from knowing Jesus Christ. Notice again, by his knowledge. By experiential knowledge, that's what it literally means, by experiential knowledge of the righteous servant. By his knowledge, my righteous servant shall justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. Salvation comes from knowing Jesus Christ. And may I say that it is not about just knowing about him, it is knowing him in a personal relationship. It is in knowing the Messiah. It is in knowing who He is and what He's done that makes us justified before God. And we're going to talk about being justified before God here. Because it tells us, by His knowledge, my righteous servant shall justify many. Now, it has been said that grace is love that had paid a price. Grace is love that had paid a price. And sinners are saved by grace. That is a constant throughout all of Scripture, not just the New Testament. A sinner is saved by grace. Listen, justice can only condemn the wicked and justify the righteous. But grace justifies the ungodly when they trust in Jesus Christ. Grace justifies the ungodly when they trust in Jesus Christ. Again, we need to look at the Scriptures to see this in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8-10. through Most of you are familiar with this. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works. In other words, not what you do that saves you, lest anyone should boast. For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So by grace you've been saved through faith. But if you'll turn to Romans chapter 4, I want you to notice something here. It says in verse 5 and following, But to him who does not work but believes on him who justifies the ungodly. There it is. I just said that grace justifies the ungodly when they trust in Jesus Christ. Paul says, To him who does not work but believes on him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is accounted for righteousness. (coughs) Just as David also describes the blessedness of the man to whom God imputes righteousness apart from works. To impute or to put unto a person's account. And then he says, and quotes from the Psalms, Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven, Psalm 32, and whose sins are covered. Verse 8, Blessed is the man to whom the Lord shall not impute sin. That's justification. To justify, in other words, means to declare righteous. If you have received Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you have been declared righteous before God. Not by your works, but by your faith that came through the grace that was given to you as that gift. By grace you've been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, 
lest anyone should boast. So to justify means to declare righteous. The Lord has declared you righteous, and Jesus took our sins that we might receive the gift of His righteousness. Now, I, I mean, I hope you guys are realizing this may be a lot of review here about your own Christian life, but it's always good to go over these things because you need to be able to explain these things as well. You've not only been declared righteous, but you've been given the gift of His righteousness. By the way, it's not your righteousness. It's Christ's righteousness. Look at 2 Corinthians 5, verse 21. For He made Him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. It's not our righteousness, it's God's righteousness. If you look at Romans 5, verse 17, it says, For if by the one man's offenses, or offense, I should say, death reigned through the, the one, much more those who receive abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one, Jesus Christ. Again, the gift of righteousness. It isn't our righteousness. It's God's righteousness. Or Christ's righteousness as well. But it comes back to knowing the Messiah. Do you know Jesus Christ? Folks, I want you to turn to John 17, verse 3, because Jesus said it best. And doesn't it, isn't it great to know that Jesus always says it best? Jesus, in his, in, his, in his high priestly prayer before his own Father, he says in John 17, 3, and this is eternal life. Folks, this is, he's telling us what eternal life is. Are you ready? And this is eternal life, that they may know you. He's praying for us. He says that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent that they may know you, Father, and me, your Son. That they may know that's eternal life. To know, to truly know, to have a personal relationship. That's why it's important to mention personal relationship. You know, there are some Christian denominations and groups that they don't like to hear this term, you know, personal relationship. It's, like, it's just personal. God came for all of us. Well, He wants us all to know that we can have a personal relationship with Him. That's why He prays the way He does to His Father. Lord, this is eternal life. Father, this is eternal life, that they may know You. The only true God in Jesus Christ, whom You have sent. We're not saved corporately. We're saved individually, aren't we? We're saved individually. And God knows you by name. And God knows everything about you. God knows more about you than you know about yourself. That's how personal God is about salvation. But isn't it wonderful that he says, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, speaking of himself, Jesus Christ, whom you have sent that they may know me too. Didn't Jesus say to His disciples, and I will be with you, even to the end of the age? I'll be with you. I'm not going to leave you nor forsake you. 
I'm going to give you my spirit, but because I give you my spirit, I'm going to be with you and, and we can commune together. You see, it's hard for me to believe that somebody can say, well, you know, I'm saved, but I don't really know God. Do you remember the question I asked you all to think about last week? The end of the, of the service? It's almost the end of the service today. I said, can a person be saved and not know God? And I said, it's possible. What I meant by that, so I won't confuse you about it, it's also true the other way. A person cannot be saved and, and, and not know God. But a person who has come to know Christ, when he walks away, begins to trust in the things of this world, or begins to trust in other voices, or begins to trust in other people, or begins to trust in other ways. No longer are you knowing what God wants you to do. Now you're knowing what everybody else does, or what, what everybody else tells you to do. And here's the, here's the key. There's a verse of scripture, Jeremiah 29, verse 13. If you will seek me, you will know me. If you, if you call on me, or if you come to me with all your heart, if you seek me, if you seek me. So we have to constantly stay in knowledge of Jesus Christ. And I'm going to look it up because I want, to, I want to say it right so that you guys don't miss it. But it says, it says, you will seek me and find me, I should say, when you search for me with all your heart. I will be found by you and I will bring you back. See, if you search him, when you find him, you'll know him. But you see, now Jesus is saying something to us. Eternal life is knowing from that standpoint, we can't say we know the Lord. Or we can't say that we are saved if we don't know the Lord. So both answers are right. So understand that Jesus is saying, get to know us. I want to get to know you. So as we come to the last verse now of this marvelous chapter, we see how the suffering servant, having willingly followed God's plan, is now exalted. Let's look at verse 12 all the way through. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the great, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul unto death, and he was numbered with the transgressors, and he bore the sin of many, and made intercession for the transgressors. The picture given here is that of the servant returning from his mission like a warrior loaded with spoil. Now we've already talked about the victory that Jesus Christ won. But understand that his weakness is going to turn into strength, his dishonor into honor, his defeat into victory. Everything that we have seen so far in the, in, in the crushing, in the suffering, in the afflictions of Christ in this chapter have turned into victory. And the one who was despised and rejected will take the highest place, the place of the conqueror. And again, I refer you to Philippians 2 verses 9 through 11 that says, God also has exalted or highly exalted him. And given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of those in heaven, and of those on earth, and of those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, 
to the glory of God the Father. Victory in Jesus Christ. In 2 Corinthians 2 verse 14, the same thought of triumph is given to us by Paul when he says, Now thanks be to God who always leads us in triumph in Christ. Always leads us in triumph. And through us diffuses the fragrance of His knowledge in every place. Colossians chapter 2 verses 13 through 15. And you being dead in your trespasses and uncircumcision of your flesh, He has made alive together with Him, having forgiven you all trespasses, having wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us, which was contrary to us. And He has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross, having disarmed principalities and powers. He made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in it. The triumph over the enemy. The triumph over all of those principalities and powers on the cross. There is one last reflection on who it is that all of this is for. He bore the sin of many, it says, and made intercession for the transgressors. Let's consider that we began with with pagans in the last few chapter, the last few verses of chapter 52, which is where we actually started this study. When it talks about the kings, uh, the pagan kings and all. So we began with pagans in the last few verses of chapter 52. And then the children of Israel in the first six verses of chapter 53. And then there were witnesses and hearers, insiders and outsiders. And yet in the end, we only have one group. It says the transgressors. The good news is that it was their sins that the servant bore, and it was for them that he interceded. For the transgressors. All have sinned. All have fallen short of the glory of God. All have transgressed the law of God. But in Hebrews chapter 7, verse 25, we're told, Therefore he is also able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. It is when we see ourselves as transgressors, and really I think that we have to really focus on this thought, that when we see ourselves as transgressors, that we can reach out and receive his salvation. It isn't until we come to the realization that we have sinned against a holy God. Because we can live a whole lifetime sometimes thinking that, you know, our good is going to outweigh our bad. There are a lot of people thinking that way today. I think there are people even in the church that think, you know, I just need to be good and most of the time and, and, you know, my good is going to outweigh the bad. But that's not what the Bible teaches teaches that all of us are sinners. That there is no good in us, not, not one, it says in Romans. Any of us are good. All it takes is one sin. One unconfessed sin before God. That's, that's all it takes. In the sense of a person who is, who, is a, who is apart from God. He could live all of his life good, have this one sin of rejecting the Son of God. And he's gone. For eternity, unless he gives his life to Jesus. It's giving our lives completely because we've come to the realization that we have transgressed the law of God. 
But isn't it great to know that He's prayed for us? It not it great to know that He intercedes? That He's also able to save the, to the uttermost those who come to God through Him? Since He always lives to make intercession for them? And the best thing about it is that even though we are saved today, God still makes, or Christ still makes intercession for us before the throne of God. That doesn't mean that we should not pray. It doesn't mean that we should stop praying. But it's good to know that the Lord intercedes for us, even still. And so in this chapter that we have seen, in this chapter we've seen many, many of the facets of the servant's character revealed. The suffering servant, who we know to be Jesus. He is the bridge and the channel of God's grace and mercy to sinners. In Him, the holiness and the mercy of God are perfectly reconciled. He is the key to all of God's plans for His people and for the world. And from Isaiah's standpoint, the portrait of Messiah is almost complete. There's, there's one song that remains. And by the way, we could even look at chapter 53 as a song about this suffering servant. But there's one more song, and that's in Isaiah 61, and we'll get there soon enough. But I want to read you this last, well, I should say the first three verses, because that's the song. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to preach good tidings to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to console those who mourn in Zion, to give them beauty for ashes, the oil of joy for mourning, the garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness, that they may be called trees of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. That would be the complete picture of Messiah. And so, Isaiah 53, (coughs) the suffering servant, the need for us to know the Lord, to know Him, to know the one who sent Him and to know Jesus Christ Himself. To know Him and to know what He's done for us. To study this a lot. It helps us to focus our lives, to focus our attention upon how to live our lives for the glory of Christ and not for ourselves. Shall we pray?